I've always been a foodie from really from day one, which I think was a huge help when we got into making sausages. Welcome to Tangled Taproot, where we explore the unique stories of small-scale farmers in the Midwest. I'm your co-host, Jackson. I'm Kristen. I'm John Cowan. And this is a production of Milk and Hummus. What is Milk and Hummus? We make a flavorful hummus and ready-to-drink plant-based lattes that focus on locally sourced ingredients, sustainable packaging, and the humble chickpea. All right, we're into part two of Alpacas of Troy with Jeff Suchland. And today we're going to get into the remaining part. The second part. Part two. Ah, there's more to reveal from the farm, you say? I'll say. What'd you call them? Alpacas of Troy? Alpacas of Troy. Alpacas is, that, of... is that the name of his farm? Yes. Yeah. I thought you came up with that on the fly. I was like, John, that was really good. I wish. I could wish. But no. So there's much more to discuss. He's not a one-hit wonder with alpacas. No. it's So it's an evolution on his farm, and one of the businesses that he that came about was called or is called brats of the world and it's a uh, i would say another business that he operates on the farm and it's a there's a unique story behind the origins behind this arm yeah indeed like why he has pigs yeah like for the the layer of protection that they're providing right which I don't know if he really knew that they were going to do that when he started getting pigs or if he just kind of learned that they were going to. So there was some alpacas dying or being from a mountain lion. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's, he said that's why he got the hogs initially. Yeah. And that was the, the impetus for hogs. And, you know, there's no free rides on a farm. And he really, really wanted to have a good sausage product as a result. I mean, why not? You have these pigs that are in the in the woods eating acorns and, and weeds and clover. Wonderful variety of goods, yeah. And so he wanted to have a, a fresh sausage, which is of course different than your your dried sausage, your dried cured sausage or or, or smoked sausage. He really saw this opportunity to make something unique and international. One of the Issues he saw when he brought his pigs to the butcher shop in the beginning was they threw a bunch of preservatives in the sausage meat and other less than desirable elements in his mind and the minds of, of many for a, a fresh product. Yeah, We might call those filler or junk ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he said that they didn't even realize that she's like, hey, we do this with everyone. So let's just, you know, put these preservatives in or these, you know, junk ingredients in. And, and then it wasn't until I think he said like two or three months and he was like, wait a minute. I didn't realize you were putting this stuff in my sausage. I actually just want it. I want it. Uh, I want just without, the sausage. It yeah, doesn't without. need those preservative factors because he said it's fine. Yeah. For three, you, four or five exactly. months in your freezer or whatever. And so, you know, we can avoid those undesirable pre preservatives. And that's he put forth a great deal of effort, basically yeah. almost went on a mission to make it better. And to focus on developing his own herb and spice blends very intentionally. Went through quite a bit of trouble, really, to source what he wanted for fresh and or dried. And to seek out specifically non-GMO products, which uh, through running a kitchen, we know how hard that is to find uh, things that are not genetically modified and engineered. Yeah. And to feel good about the product we're putting in a hummus cup. I mean, he made the same amount of efforts to make sure the integrity of his sausage was maintained. Yeah, a lot of times you have a, a spice book, you know, just a few generic blends, some pepper, some some clove, what have you. But 
You want something a little bit, a little bit better, a little bit more unique and tailored to the whole global influences of his research. He began hand grinding his own spices and incorporating them into those fine yeah. examples of uh, world cuisine. And before hand milling, just doing the research to figure out where to source them. Like it sounded like quite a bit of legwork. Yeah. Especially some of these are obviously very international. The name is Brats of the World. So right, um, right. The, the spectrum and variety of ingredients required to execute some of these recipes that he put a lot of time and energy researching and translating. So right. Some specialty things to track down. Yeah, because he mentioned that his undergrad, he was a he was a linguist. Yes. Um, and so he studied languages and he loves languages. Complete he enthusiast. Said that he does not trust recipes that are that are in English. Yeah. From, you know, somewhere else. So something will, is lost in translation. Absolutely. So it, you know, it takes him a while to find a decent recipe in its native language. And then not only that, but like seeing what time the time frame that it came out in, because he's like, okay, well, in this time, like, I know that this is European influence because that's when they brought, like, you know, this certain spice or this certain grain to... Or it was post or pre a certain war. So he's done his homework far beyond, you know, to ensure that the original or most authentic recipe is being represented, like, prior to influence. That must be why I think he said he only releases, like, two different ones a year. Yeah. Because it takes a, a significant amount of time, I imagine, just to get all the research done and to make sure it's authentic and to, like, present it to be, like, you know, its best self. Yeah, I admire that greatly. Yeah. A lot of intention. And I think, like, upwards of, was it 200 con- different countries he aspires to create a, yeah. a sausage offering goal. from? Right, yes. that's his goal. Remarkable. 200. How many countries can you list off? <laughs> I've like oh shoot I feel I like know. this is like high school geography or something. I could probably do a good a good 10 <laughs> at the very least the very least yeah, I could do is 10 I don't 10. think we should embarrass ourselves right now on a microphone I was homeschooled so I actually don't mind it's like well if I don't if I don't know enough then it's okay I I did not get a proper education <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's pretty cool that not only so is he is he having this this raw material, this pork product that is amazing to begin with, but then he's incorporating the historical base sausage or spice blend for yeah. that for that region or time period, as you mentioned, Jackson. But then he also wants to go a little bit further by making recommendations on how to eat the sausage. So he's making recommendations like, oh, well, you should cook it with some, you know, serve it with rice and some cilantro and... Sure. Garnish suggestions or, yeah, what type of carbohydrate or starch is most authentic to be paired with it. Yeah, so you're essentially going to that place at your house. It's a complete experience that he's curating for you. Kristen and I were talking about this earlier with uh, the difference just between you could have two people from the same place and they will have just different recipes for the same dish. I and mean, I think you mentioned like, oh, well, no, we eat it with noodles while we eat it with rice. Yeah, or and, we're potatoes only and we we never keep noodles in the house. Right, exactly. And they might literally be neighbors. Exactly, But the cultural exactly. interpretation or what's passed down in a family's traditions are so... Yeah, and so there's there's so much that he has to sift through, you know, in order to right. get it to get something that is like, you know, truly authentic, to know what to pair it with and to know the type of things that you should eat it with. So kudos to this guy. Yeah. And that's why I'm really excited to share this interview with the world, because I think it's it's really 
we're kind of letting people know that this guy has done some significant research and that's noteworthy. And I can recall like a couple of years ago, maybe at the Tower Grove Farmer's Market, I had one of my first conversations with Jeff that was more than just like a hello, hi there, neighbor type of, you know, I sell hummus. I have bratwurst and alpaca fiber. And he was telling me about one of his featured products that weekend. And as a food enthusiast myself and someone who adores adjectives and hearing stories, I really was so captivated by him talking about whatever sausage it was at the time. And please forgive me, Jeff, I, I can't remember that detail. I feel bad now. But he was he spoke about it so elaborately and so intentionally. Like you could just tell it was each recipe is kind of almost his baby, a baby. It's like yeah. a full project and so well thought out and researched. And I just was not expecting that sort of high caliber story and background and intentionality and then telling me how to serve it. And he's like, well, and then I toasted this before I grind it. And then, you know, and this one has three different types of peppers and and he he could just he won't hold back. He'll be very he's a, a great explainer of things and also a good storyteller. And I think yeah. th- those two things combined make for a really interesting experience, too, at the farmer's market for anybody or bringing a, a kid along, too. I mean, you're going to learn something from Jeff and that's special. Can I just say, listening to this interview, he sounds so sweet. I was like, this is the sweetest man in the entire world. In fact, I even wrote down in my notes one of my favorite quotes from the entire interview. He says, he says I get very attached to my boar. And I was like, my gosh, Aww. this man is just so sweet. I can't, I cannot deal right now. <laughs> yes, farmer with all the heart. And he really wants to make that connection with the the customer. And he says, I did go the grocery store route, but I was missing that that direct connection. And so what he looks forward to is really, like you said, you're one of the, the people that actually got to experience what he enjoys most is, yeah, the explanation, that, that connection with, with, a, with a customer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really beautiful thing. And just from what we do, we know the value of interacting with our customers and knowing what they like or dislike or keeping up with them and and Jeff really is uh, intentional and takes a personal approach to staying connected to the people wanting to hear if they enjoyed his most recent mole creation or oh, mole, provide some anyone feedback. that mole is my favorite too and anyone that loves mole is a rock star I you know they could do no wrong I, I can do a lot of wrong it, it seems <laughs> <laughs> mole is not my favorite <laughs> Well, there's different types of mole. Maybe you just not have you haven't found the, the right, right mother mom. sauce. Yes. Maybe, maybe that's all it is. Maybe that's all it is. One thing I learned from this interview is apparently sausage from Schnucks is not that bad. He compared himself and his sausage to Schnucks sausage. He was like, "Oh yeah, like Schnucks also doesn't, you know." put all of these preservatives in their, like, fresh fresh sausage. And I was like, oh, okay. That carries some weight. I guess, Mm -hmm. like, if there, here's this, like, organic farmer who is, like, you know, making his stuff and growing his own boar, and he's like, well, Schnucks also has quality like Mm -hmm. mine. And I was like, okay. That is, that says a lot about Schnucks. Yeah, it does. I've got a... Although Schnucks recipes are not even one fifth as complex as Not nearly, not nearly, not nearly. (laughs) Or historically, radically researched and driven, but... But that's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a fun surprise. Yeah. It just made me made me think more highly of Schnooks. I was like, okay, I don't have to hate on you so much. No, you can take that part out, actually. <laughs> I love, love Schnooks. Just kidding. 
Travel through food. That's right. Yes. Flavor experience. So if you don't have a passport or can't afford an airplane ticket right now, you could go get some of Jeff's sausages to help transport you to another place and have a fun food, culinary flavor experience of your own. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Yeah. And uh, travel to another place and time. Right. Yeah. It's got some famous. I, I know I personally have purchased like a medieval a medieval sausage that he worked really hard to piece together. And like, <laughs> just the term medieval sounds like quite a bit of digging yeah, through cool. some materials and perhaps stone tablets yeah. to find out <laughs> what ingredients and what quantities and what sort of flavors were conveyed in that sausage. Yeah, he had to talk to an imp and maybe like a dragon in order to get that sausage. Yeah, many swords were used. Many, many swords, yes. <laughs> Passed on uh, through knights. Wait, also, he does use a few different animals on the sausage. Like, some of his goats have been incorporated in the sausage in the past. So they're not just exclusively pig sausages, pork yeah, sausages, folks. South American, excuse me, the South African variety incorporates. That's what he started with, right? I think you're right. I think, I think you're right. I think yeah, so. it was beef, lamb. And pig, and pig or yeah. goat. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But he definitely works with one, two, four different animals in various ratios for his sausages on chicken on occasion. Yeah, I think I, I think I heard chicken as well. But more rarely. Talk about using what you got. Yeah. We should ask him when the peacock sausages will be released. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Just kidding, folks. Don't cry. Uh, not ginger. Not ginger. <laughs> Well, as long as we say Fred, because he's got the flashy tail. And with that, we go back to Jeff Suchlin of Alpacas of Troy and Broads of the World. So the hugs that are in the forest, how much uh, acreage would you say is the, the domain of, the, of the, the hogs? And also, what type of breed are they? That's a good question. I'll start with the breed, uh, because I, I could have and I have had different breeds over the years. But right now, I have a Duroc Old World Spot and a Hampshire Cross right now, my current boar as a Hampshire, but I only do that because they tend to grow a little faster than some of the older breeds like the Duroc and the old the world spot. They are a little bit slower growers, but they, I mean, they forage well. I can't say that they forage as well as maybe like a um, Cooney Cooney or some of the other like uh, other breeds, but they produce a lot better bacon. And, uh, <laughs> and that's, and there, there's what's known as fat hogs, which produce a lot of fat, like for lard and things, but the bacon isn't very good. And then there, is, there are breeds of hog, which are more like a bacon hog. Um, so I do breed more of a modern hog, which was dual purpose, because when I first started, I thought, well, worst case scenario, I can sell them as show pigs to the 4-H kids and things, which I used to do quite a lot, because the bloodlines are really, really good. Nowadays, I don't really care uh, whether they they have to have babies in September in order to be a fair hog. So I actually only had like six that were born at the right time this go around, mainly because we're switching hogs right now. Elvis is on my current boar, and then Jerry Lee is up and coming. So he's actually not big enough to breed all the girls yet, but he's getting there. Give him a couple <laughs> more months, he'll be able to breed everybody. That's kind of partly why I didn't get as many fair hogs as I might might have in the past. Uh, so they're kind of a more of a modern you know, breed, but old world heritage breeds still considered. But, you know, they're not like Yorkshire or Chester White. You know, those would be more of what you find in the commercial 
the commercial factories and stuff, um, like the the huts and stuff. My hogs typically don't know what four walls look like. They I keep them in a pen uh, when they're first born for about two weeks because I've learned that if I let the mom just have them out in the field, they a, a fox or something will take them. So they they have to stay in a pen for about two weeks. Then they're fast enough to get away, and then they're really hard to catch until they're about four months old. That's <laughs> they're a lot of fun. They're a critical part of what we do these days. So there's a posse of pigs out in the tree line right now. Yep. Yep. How there's about 150 right now. Are you serious? Yes, I am. Oh, the way you were talking, I was thinking like six, maybe. No, but no. you've got a lot of ladies out there. No, I usually More only men. run six to, uh, six to eight females. It's usually a pretty good run. I've had up to 10, but that usually gives me more babies than I really want. So you're around six to 10. Yep. That's usually... And a litter of pigs averages what? Oh, great question. I prefer six to eight. I prefer them to give me two litters a year. Production hogs typically in a hut, they want at least 12 to 14, and they want to have four litters a year. And they pull the babies super early. Like, they'll pull them at five days, and they'll put them on feed at five days because they want to get four litters a year. But even if you only do three litters a year... I mean, it's just tough on the mom. It just drains them down. And I've learned I don't want big litters. I want small litters. If I want more hogs, I will have more moms because mom has to find enough food. You know, nature has an interesting diet program. No matter what happens, if you're nursing a baby, it's going to suck all those calories right out of you. And the mom will give them as much as they can. So to the detriment of the mother. So you've got to, it's a balance. You've got to make sure that the mom can find enough food to support her and the babies. So I prefer small litters. Six to eight is ideal for me, which is like most hog farmers that I know, if they had a sow that was giving them six to eight babies, that sow would be burger. They would not keep that sow. But for me, that is perfect. It's a different approach. Completely. It's a completely different approach. That's a, but I mean, I know she's got to work hard to find enough, you know, to forage and she got to be able to support those babies. And I don't want her weaning those babies, which usually happens around six weeks old. I don't want her her weaning those babies and she's super skinny. I want her to look, you know, reasonably good so that she'll be good to have another, uh, in two months, she can get pregnant and have another litter. That's how I do it. Works good because I get very attached to my sows and my boar. Yeah. I was just trying to complete my list of animals present here. The peacocks were a definite surprise. Mm. I think I knew that at some point, but I had forgotten that that was you that had peacocks. So is this complete peacocks, alpacas, sheep, horse, ducks, chickens, goats, dog, cat, pig? Turkey. Turkey. Turkeys are new. Okay. They, yeah, and I can't say that they're doing a whole lot. You know, we do make a lot of different things that are a lot of fun. I'm an outside of brats of the world, but the sausages, we make 22 different sausages. But we also make a lot of different dishes, really, that go back to just the our, our real interest in international food in general. Not only do we make the sausages from all over the world, but we also make things from different dishes from all over the world. And the turkeys, I'm a huge fan of mole. Mole poblano de Mexico. Mole is so good. I love mole. And there's like mole. I lived in Mexico when I was 19 for a year. One of the, it was so good. Everybody should do that. I I just fell in love with the whole, uh, everything there. But mole is one of my all-time favorite things on the planet Earth. And if you go to a grocery store in Mexico, there's mountains of mole. So many different kinds. There's red mole, black mole, there's green mole, there's all kinds of mole. You would think, in North America, we have Donna Maria. Donna Maria is in little cans. 
And it's the only thing you're going to find at a grocery store. Uh, but mole can be so much more than that. And so I love mole. It's a mother sauce for Mexican food, really. So I, I wanted to have the turkeys mainly for the mole poblano. And that's just a store comes from, from Puebla, Mexico, which I visited when I was there. And, uh, you know, and the, the story is beautiful. But I had the turkeys for the mole. Last year, we did a run of mole. But I just got the turkeys from Rustic Roots, which are my neighbors at the market. So that was that worked out really well. But I wanted to, and I'm not going to take turkeys to the, the farm, to the market, just like I don't take rabbits to the farm. But we make a lot of things from the rabbit that we grow here on the farm. I'm not going to take whole rabbits. I'm not going to take whole turkeys. I will do a run of, and we did, we've done it in the past too. Every couple of years I'll do, I'll raise up some chickens for just things that we want to make here. I have to limit. I can't take everything. And I don't want to take everything. So that's, so we will do a run this year of, of chickens, just um, um, meat birds so that we can um, do uh, some dishes just with chicken as well. But I'm a, be- I'm a bigger fan of rabbit than chicken personally. You mentioned brats of the world. Is, is, was the uh, pork the catalyst for your food, uh, I guess, food entrepreneurship? Uh, well, that is a good question. I've always, I've always been a foodie from really from day one, which I think was a huge help when we got into making sausages. But really started brats of the world was the fact that I would just spend so much time raising these hogs and then I would take them to the butcher and the butcher would like, they didn't know. They didn't know. They're just, this is what they've been doing for decades. But they would put things in the sausage that I did not want there. Preservatives, DHA, BHA, things that you don't need if you're not, if you're going to eat your sausage in the next four months, you do not need these things. And that's, uh, so I didn't want that polluting what I'd already spent 10 months to grow. But that was... Good for you. That was So that's why I started the company. I was looking for preservative-free options and I couldn't find very many at all. And then, so that led me to look into the history of how did they do this before all these, because really around, they really started to put a lot of preservatives in in the 1940s. And then, you know, a lot of companies started going to the butchers and saying, hey, butcher, you don't really want to be messing with these fresh ingredients. Let us do all the spice mix for you. And so today you go to a, a butcher and they're not doing the spices themselves. They're buying it from, from another place. But now Schnooks is a good example. Schnooks can get a half hog or a whole hog in. They can break it down process it, make sausage with the fresh ingredients that they actually have in the grocery store that you're already buying. And this is perfectly fine. So what our operation is like a snooks, identical, really. But a butcher isn't able to do what we're able to do because they they can't source the fresh ingredients. Does that make any sense at all? But that's kind of where, where things have moved. Like a traditional butcher, like a country butcher, they've, they're they now locked into using these these spice packages. And you create your own spice blends, I right? do. Yeah. I so do. we have With some fresh serious quality and integrity that you're incorporating exactly. into your intentional, effortful animals that you're raising. So it kind of makes sense for the time that you're putting in that you're also putting in a high caliber ingredient profile list with yes. something you've cared for so much. Well. And, you know, for when I first started this and I would go to, I went to spice companies, said, I need spices that are non-GMO. I want them to be no preservatives and then that. And they said, well, we won't do it because we can't guarantee the flavor profile. And that was interesting because guaranteed if you're using a fresh ingredient over a dried ingredient, you're going to have better flavor. That is fresh is always better than, you know, than something preserved in any way, really, in my experience. I couldn't get any spice companies to do a spice blend for me. That's why I ended up having to do it myself. Plus, I can control every aspect of the flavor and what goes in the sausages. That that was really important to me. 
on the flip side, when I do our Thai sausage, which has 11 fresh ingredients, I don't know how spicy those chilies are until we make the sausage. You know, <laughs> I have the recipe <laughs> and we do the spices, but you don't, uh, you don't know because it's using all fresh ingredients. It's got cilantro and green onion, turmeric, shallots, kefir lime leaves, garlic, Thai chilies, really great fresh ingredients that, so you don't know how, I, every batch is a little different, but most of the time it's pretty consistent, but it's, you know, Sometimes it'll be a spicy batch or sometimes it'll be a mild batch. And I can usually just tell the customer, well, this this batch is a mild batch or this batch is extra spicy. Not because we use less chilies. It's just that's how the chilies grew that at that time. If people are maybe acquainted with Brats of the World or have maybe seen you at the St. Louis or Tower Grove Farmers Markets and they they maybe see this list of varieties of sausages and brats and all these flavors. Do you have a particular sourcing or inspiration where these flavor profiles come from? You mentioned, of course, Mexico living there. I can see where you'd get a lot of excitement uh, from your palate living there, but you also have this great international flair that you incorporate. Well, my favorite food on the planet comes from Indonesia. My wife is from Jakarta of 30 years, and she and the food there is outstanding. I just love everything about it. I, I was a linguist in my undergrad, and I speak several languages, and I love languages. That's my hobby is languages, and languages really help me to connect with some of the recipes because many times I'm having to find them in the native language. So I'm currently learning German and Japanese. I, I do speak several other languages. And I love languages. They just really connect people. I think it's mind-blowing to me that we live in such an isolated world where we just don't only speak one language. And I, I really think everybody, I love the Swiss. I, for years, for 20 years, I was a language teacher and I taught mainly English to people from other languages. This was, things have come a long way in education, especially in other countries. So you, you know, you're learning, they're learning English much earlier. So nowadays, you know, they will, they will speak English very, very well. But the Swiss, they usually speak four languages. That's why they make such great translators, because they'll usually speak Italian and they'll speak German and English. And But I, I had a lot of European clients I was teaching English to. That has helped. And I think food is a great way to travel. You can experience the culture and experience yeah, going to another country by experiencing the food if you're not and if you definitely, if you go to that country, you definitely have to experience the food. But I think food is a great way to travel if you if you aren't leaving the country. But languages are, you know, always going to be something I love to do. I one day hope to speak ten languages, but I'm kind of saving a couple of tough ones for later. <laughs> What's your number of languages right now? That you've seven mastered. Okay, wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seven, five decently, and two not so great. But I'm working on it. That's a, the, the two, German and Japanese, I'm, I'm working on now. Okay. And that's helped you, too. I know we've talked before at the farmer's market about some recipe research and hunting down ingredients and where a recipe's origin might be. So you've been able to really benefit from your oh, language yes. background by getting to dig into some books and research and maybe the authentic language itself of that culture to coax out a recipe. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I have, uh, especially when it comes to sausages, I, I can't find sausages, any good recipes in, in English. I mean, that's just, yeah, no, 
That's a, <laughs> I'm definitely going to be searching in the language of origin. And even then, it takes a little bit of knowledge also about the history because I like to do things that are historic. And sometimes you look at a recipe and you know this recipe is more of a modernized recipe because it's got ingredients that they wouldn't have had access to sure. 100 years ago. So I do look into that and I say, because a lot of, even in cookbooks, I, I don't trust oftentimes the recipe because you, you really, of course, if you probably cooked off of a cookbook and it didn't come out exactly the way you thought it was going to, it sometimes, a lot of times it does not. Over the years, I have learned about, you know, how different spices and different influences in food has, have happened over hundreds of years. It all goes back to the spice trade and an introduction of thing, of plants that were not native to other parts of the world. And now they've become a main component in certain, in certain foods that we associate. But if you think about it, they never even saw that ingredient before like the 1600s. They didn't even know what it was. And nowadays it's like a main component in their food. Like a lot of corn is grown in Africa. That was not a, corn is not an African and chilies are the same way. So it's a, a lot has changed in the last 400 years in food. It's just fun. I just love that. It's uh, So learning about that. And sometimes I'll tell people, this is a historic version or this is a very modern version of this dish. Because, you know, if we are incorporating things in it that, that I know they didn't have, you know, 400 years ago, but it tastes so much better with it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So we do have a lot of fun with it. But, oh, how do things get on my menu? It's 100% everything I love. Inspiration. If it's, yeah, if it's, if it, if I don't love it, I don't put it on the board. Yeah. I have to love it. That's the only reason I make it. That's, uh, some of the things are just, you know, so random. You might think, oh my gosh, where's this guy getting this? Well, because I, I love Braunschweiger and I love Pozole and, and, you know, the different things that we make. Um, split pea soup. I've always been a fan of split pea soup. It was one of the first things we started making when we branched off from the, is because I just love it. So really, it gets on the menu because I love it. What was like one of your first sausage flavors or what? Like, what the South your African Borderburst really launched the company. Really, and that, uh, that launched the company because it was so tied to the spice trade. And it was the Dutch that settled in South Africa in the 1800s. And they colonized, I mentioned my wife from Gita, from, she grew up in Jakarta. But if you go to Jakarta, you will see a museum there that talks about the spice trade. And they colonized. Indonesia for hundreds of years. They only got their freedom in the 70s and that uh, they declared their independence. But they they were pulling a lot of the spices from Southeast Asia and bring them, bringing them to Europe and the rest of the world, really. But they settled in, in South Africa. They're part of the 12, there's 12 tribes in South Africa and uh, the Afrikaans, that's the tribe. Uh, they are one of 12. And But they, everybody in South Africa loves this sausage. It's the Borderverse. It's got it's got clove, allspice, and nutmeg. It's got red wine. It's got pork. It's got pork and beef and and lamb. So it's really a combination, and it's one of the best sausages in the world. And it's the center point of their eating, of their grilling experience. They'll put one of these on a grill, and then they surround it with all the other meats that they're going to grill. So and they liken it to bacon, and I can see why. It is uh, they eat it cold like we eat it summer sausage. It is a great sausage, um, one of the best in the world. So we started with that one really as a fluke because it was one of the only ones I could find that was an option that was preservative free when I, before I started to actually make my own sauce. Uh, now I had, I re, for a couple of years, we actually sold the preservative free version made by another company. 
And then I said, I just have to go back to the, to the roots because all the other sausages I was making were ones that I've had to come up with. So I went back and I re-engineered it from, from the ground up so I could make it the way it was made in the 1800s. So it's got, we grind the clove ourselves. We, um, we, uh, the cinnamon, the, everything we put into the, into the sausage is now, it's not a spice package. And, and I do think it was an improvement from the original one, but that sausage launched the company. But we've been making that one for probably 10 years, more than that probably now. I just say 10 because that's an easy number to remember. But <laughs> it's probably been more than 10. But I probably re-engineered it about eight years ago. And most South Africans, they've also, they had the same experience as we have here in North America. All the butchers are using spice packs and spice blends. So even though they love this sausage, they've rarely had it as a homemade sausage, like what it would have been made like in the 1800s. So ours is is one that it would have been how it was made pre-industrialization. So I love that about that sausage as much as I do you know, some of the other ones uh, that are more of a modern sausage. But still for us, it's all fresh ingredients as much as possible. How many farmers markets or outlets are you selling at regularly or seasonally? In the regular season, every week we're at nine, nine markets a week. Yep, <laughs> that's where we're at. We usually have... We've got, on the weekend, we have four, typically. And during the week, we have a market on, on, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And usually Thursday, we have two. I can list them for you if you want me to. But uh, yeah, yeah, Tower Grove, UCD, Ferguson, Lake St. Louis. Those are our weekend markets, Saturdays and Sundays. Boulevard as well on Sunday. And then on Tuesdays, we are sometimes at the Tower Grove market. Wednesday, we're at the, the Seoul Market in Maplewood. On Thursdays, we are at the Point Labadee Brewery Market, which is one of my favorite markets of all time. Beer's great there. And the best thing about it is you, there's a sense of community. And even though I love getting to know all of our customers all the time, I always don't, I don't always have enough time to talk to them. So that market, like it's diff different. I bring a couple coolers. People have beers. They're not going anywhere. They, uh, they'll buy something and I keep it in the cooler till they're ready to go. They know to go grab it when they're ready. It's just a different atmosphere completely. And it's just like hanging out and really, you really get to know and, and just develop really good relationships with the people there, which I wish every farmer's market was like that. But I think it's gotten to the, it's sometimes crazy. You know, people want to buy and leave. That's, uh, I wish they didn't, I wish they would stay. But, <laughs> but then it was, it was, anyway, it takes a long time to really develop a relationship from a vendor standpoint. If you've only got like 10 or 20 seconds. And you've got a line of 10 or 15 people. You can't always, you know, people get annoyed if they're waiting in line for too long. <laughs> but I do like that Point Lavity Brewery Market. And then on Thursday, we're, we're also at the, uh, which I think it's going to be uh, weekly. We're at the Washu Market on Thursday in the regular season in the morning. And then we're at the, um, that other one, the new one. Francis Park? Rock, Francis Rock Park. Well, yeah, yeah. We'll be, we're at Francis Park, which I think hopefully is going to be in every Thursday. It was that's in every it, other Thursday it's gonna last be, time. Yeah, it's going to be great. I think it'll be great. It's a really good, really good one. So that's everybody I think that we're doing. How many different uh, varieties or regions would you say are influenced from your brats of the world? Or does it depend? I can kind of list. It might be easier for me to grab my list, but I can do a lot of them off my top of my head. There's 200 that I want to make. And I and one of the criteria is I know I, I add two I add two a year I will not add more than two a year because it's hard enough to keep up with the ones we already make. But it literally is brought to the world when you're saying something like yes. Let's 200. say that one more time <laughs> of the world. <laughs> These are large numbers, folks. Uh, yeah, two. Yeah, there's 200 I want to make, and I and I have a hierarchy of uh, of, of the ones 
I started with the fresh sausages, and so, uh, but there's a couple that are also traditionally smoked. So my the newest one that I that I will be releasing in the spring is is a Portuguese sausage, and this is a really and it's traditionally smoked. But most of the time, so you don't find it as fresh. You usually find it smoked. But there's a difference between smoked sausage and dried sausage. I don't do any dried sausages. I've traditionally just stuck with the fresh ones because uh, those, you mix the meats together and, and the seasonings and they're ready. You just put them on a grill and, and eat them. So that's, uh, but in Germany alone, there are hundreds of of hundreds, like every city has one. There's even a game show. There was, it's not on anymore, but there was a game show and the mayors were the were the, were the people on there and you had to, uh, they would taste the different sausages and and be able to tell which sausage came from which city. And our, our one of my one of my all-time favorite sausages we make is the medieval German, which is a Thuringer. It's a fresh Thuringer and that's from central Germany. So that's, uh, uh, and I make a modern German as well from 19th century post-spice trade German sausage, but I should make a lot more German sausages. I would like to. So it's not only German sausages, but brats, bratwurst would be the name of the German but really, they're fresh sausages. So we make a Filipino longanisa. That was one of the hardest ones because every 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 island in the, in the Philippines has their own recipe for the sausage. And I tried a few that were terrible. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you which ones are terrible, but the one that we make now is called the ma. It's a sweet style versus sometimes there were spicy styles. But it's um, so we make a Filipino longanisa. We make a uh, the Thai sausage, and uh, we're doing Irish sausage this week. The borderverst. Uh, we're doing also next week. We're doing a Colombian sausage called Butapar Solidania. We make uh, a chorizo from Argentina. It's an Argentinian chorizo, which is also in my book one of the best sausages in the world. So we've got that one coming up um, probably in, a, in in like three weeks, four weeks. I just kind of go around the world and I say what sausages are we making from this region. <laughs> That way I can kind of keep track. Anyway, there's 22 total. An Alsatian sausage from northern, like eastern France, from the Alsace Mountains. That's a good one I only do about twice a year. An, a German sausage called Neuenberg that we la- we introduced last year, which was real popular in farmer's markets in Germany. They call it three on a bun, and you get three sausages, with, and they're skinny. They're in sheep's casing, and you have a little dipping mustard with it. Uh, rookwurst, a Dutch rookwurst, my father-in-law's favorite sausage. Um, I do like that one as well. It looks like a mini kielbasa. Anyway, so that's probably enough to tell you about. Yeah. But there's there's a number of them. I'm forgetting probably 10. I'm sure. I didn't even bring my passport today, but I feel like <laughs> I've just made my way around to many continents. Yeah. And now I'm a little bit hungry also. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Actually quite hungry. Yeah. <laughs> All of these uh, um, sausages often have a traditional way to eat them. So I always like to share that with our customers. Not only do they learn about the sausages, but they learn how they're they're eaten in that country. I really appreciate that. That's one thing I remember when I first met you at a, the Tower Grove Farmer's Market or perhaps the Sunday Boulevard Farmer's Market was the, the, the history and the cultural background that you were sharing with each of your products, you know, and the description of this, the spices and the profile of what was in it because as a food person and somebody that thinks with my palate forward first, I really appreciated all that that detail and then the background that you were putting into your products because yeah. it's educational and, and historical. It and yeah, kind of like you said, it's a way to travel and experience different regions. Yeah. One of the best things about travel is the food. Besides the farmer's markets, where can 
folks get not only your brats, but also the fiber or yeah. fiber products? Yep, they do. Yeah, we always have our fiber, alpaca fiber stuff uh, there. Um, we'll have uh, dryer balls, which my wife's a felt artist and I'm the yarn maker. So so she'll make a lot of different. I mentioned half of our income from the fiber, from the alpacas comes from the fiber from what a lot of farmers are throwing away. And she really uses a lot of that stuff. I'm usually using the best stuff to make the yarn and she's using everything else to make like the dryer balls and the insoles, which are really quality products. And if we use the blanket or like the really high quality stuff we would use for yarn, the products wouldn't even be as good. They, they're they better as used with the seconds because they're more durable. The fiber's a little bit stronger. So actually it's uh, works out. It's a great synergy there. So she's using the products. She's using the fiber, but she can have whatever she wants. She can use whatever she wants to use. But but a lot of times her fiber products will be more durable. You made with like neck hair or leg hair instead of blanket hair. So we'll have at the market we typically have dryer balls and insoles and she makes belted creatures of all kinds, which I love. That's more of her artistic side. She makes some really cute things like gnomes and yetis and uh, sloths and penguins and just some real cute stuff. Some practical, some more for show. The felted soap bar yes. is one of my favorite That's... things that I've discovered from you. <laughs> I love those. Yeah. Great those for kiddos. Yeah. Like I have a lot of friends that are moms and it's easier for them to hold on to, you know, because it's got this felted for sure. fiber around it for and sure. it's a great hand washing tool for kiddos and they'll yeah. Great smart. for camping too. Like if you take ah. one camping. You don't have like to a do mushy, all. you just have your, and it'll dry in like 10 minutes and it's just a nice, um, ah, brilliant. it's a nice thing to bring camping with you. Then you've got your washcloth and your soap. You don't need an extra soggy bag or something. And people get uh, them from from a website or just at the market or? On the website at Alpacas of Troy, you can go into the shop and you can buy dryer balls and you can buy felted soap and insoles. I don't put the yarn on there because it's, you know, I never know what I'm making. And when I do make it, I'd send it out to my customers and half the time they buy it before I show up at the market. <laughs> so it's a little better in the winter but because uh, I and the markets are slower and uh, things. But I, you know, I, the mill doesn't get as much action as it probably could. And then for Bratz the World, could people find you at a, at a, uh, a grocery store? No. I mean, I have put them in the grocery stores in the past, but I really prefer to deliver directly to them. Okay. We drop off at their porch. If they can't can't get to a farmer's market, we deliver every week. Yep. My wife and I and my helper, I really like dropping off to people. It's just a much better way of going. That, if I put it into a grocery store, two things happen. Number one, it sits on a shelf and nobody's there to tell them about it. And so they're lucky to see it and find it. And the other thing that happens, well, I don't want it to sit there, but anyway, we don't get to know the customer either. Sure. So I can't tell them anything about it. So that's why I prefer to just sell directly to customers or or to drop off at your porch. Then I've got a chance to tell you anything you might want to know. It's just a great, better way to develop relationships. I know it's not the most convenient. It's nice to go to a grocery store and grab it, but we do deliver every week. And that's so far, that's been our best mode of, of especially in the winter. We do a lot more deliveries in the winter. In the summer, people are making it out to the farmer's markets. I just think there's a revolution happening in the restaurant industry in general. And I do think that people are looking for quick and easy ways that are not, that it's not fast food, but it's food that they can eat quickly and have ready in their, in their freezer or refrigerator. So that's really what we like to provide and an international flair to that aspect. So then they can just have it in their freezer and pop it out and eat it. That's going to be restaurant quality. 
I always offer a 100% money-back guarantee on anything I ever sell. They either get a credit or they get their money back if they don't love it. Because I don't do taste testing. People ask, why don't you do test testing? I just don't have the manpower to do it. So that's my offer. They just get it. They they either love it or they get their money back. So you're offering it in a, an experience as well. I mean, really from all your research and understanding of uh, the origins of those ingredients for that sausage. So that's pretty That's pretty cool. It's fun. <laughs> Well, I love it. I definitely love it. Well, it's intentional and personal and just like with your porch deliveries and just that extra effort because you do want to explain and connect people to your product or the background of a certain sausage origin. I think that's really, well, it's unique in our fast-paced world where everybody's like, grab it, go, don't talk to me, you know, faster, move the line, you know, like you're you're slowing it down and making people stop, think about it, taste it, enjoy it, you know. This is true. Well, I think if they try it and they try it and they know and they may try one and they don't like it, but then maybe they'll try another one and they'll love that one. That's, uh, but I think if we don't give them a chance to try it the way that it was eaten in that country, then you're not really experiencing it the way that it was meant to be experienced, you know, because I think that flavors develop over time through culture. They taste good for a reason, because they're eaten with other things that taste good together. You know, you wouldn't want to take a Filipino longanisa and throw sauerkraut on it. That would be terrible. It would be horrible (laughs) (laughs) because they're not meant to be eaten together. So I guess a little bit of education. And if somebody buys it in a grocery store, although I do put everything on the label, I try to say like, this is what you're supposed to do with this. I'd like to put it on the label because I never know, you know, when they take it home, I want to at least hopefully, hopefully they have a chance of having an authentic experience. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, John. This was so much fun. Yeah. I loved it. I learned a lot. Yeah, That's great. And with that, thanks again to Jeff Suchlin of Alpacas at Troy. We appreciate your time and expertise. We look forward to seeing you at many of the farmers markets in the region, including Tower Grove Farmers Market, Lake St. Louis, U City, Ferguson, Boulevard, Saul Food Farmers Market in Maplewood, and Point Labadee. Brewing our brewery. There's also a a couple websites that you can tap into, tap your tap root into, and order yourself some sausages. You could have bratwurst delivered to your doorstep. Front porch handoff. Doesn't get much more fresh or more personal than that. Rotsoftheworld.com. Similarly, alpacasatroy.com for dryer balls, insoles, and... And your yarn needs. And your yarn needs. Don't forget the felted soap for the kids and your camping trips. That is right. This is Tangled Taproot. It's a production of Milk and Hummus. I am John Cowan. And I'm Jackson. I'm Kristen. We hope you like what you have heard. Please like, share, and review us. Again, thank you so much for listening. Send us your thoughts to tangledtaproot at milkandhummus.com. We plan to answer any questions that we might receive from your email, so please send away. Also, any recommendations, suggestions, or passionate farms, farmers, growers, people, homesteaders that you would like us to feature, please don't hesitate to send a message to tangledtaproot at milkandhummus.com. Thanks for tuning in. 